Well, greetings to you once again. Please open with me in your copy of God's word to the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark will be in chapter three today from verse seven through the end of the chapter, verse 35. Sorry about the tornadoes last night. There were some three cells that floated over our home or, or around it. Um, we were in the clear. I had to uh, disarm the trampoline and throw the basketball hoop on the the grass, as I, I do, as is our tradition in these situations. I grew up with a basement. I'm not in the mood to be on the first floor with this kind of weather, but getting a bit used to it. We've got a closet that we, we clear out when um, it's close enough. Hope that you all are okay. I know that there are texts going around between members this morning I'm already hearing about with people checking in on each other. And isn't that nice that we have more than our neighbors And we have more than family in maybe distant places to keep track of us, but we've got a whole family here in town and we keep track of each other good and well. Keep it up. Well, it's one thing to follow someone on Instagram. It's another thing to follow someone across town, perhaps in a car. It's another thing to follow someone in a race. It's another thing to follow a tornado. You've heard of storm chasers. They exist, these people that follow tornadoes and they're trying to get something from the tornado, maybe the right picture, maybe some scientific data. But a tornado could take everything from them. That is not terribly unlike following Jesus, who as well can take everything from us. Following Jesus is a risky endeavor. Following Jesus requires that our eyes are wide open that we know what we're doing. And Jesus in the course of his teaching ministry will make sure that we know full well what we're doing. He will show us where his path even leads. Make no mistake, this relationship takes something from us. It may take everything from us. It can hurt. We find ourselves on account of Jesus embarrassed, put out, Afflicted in everything, as the Apostle Paul said. And despite our best efforts, following Jesus often means that we fall out with people whom we love. Friends, Jesus knows this. He knows this. And there's something he wants to say to his followers today. There's something he wants to say to you and me today. It's deeply meaningful. We need to hear it. Let's read together from Mark verse, chapter 3, verse 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and from Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James to whom he gave the name. uh, I practiced it. I'm going to skip it. Sorry. I can't pronounce it on the spot. I thought I could. That is the son of thunder. That's what's important, what it means, the son of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies, blasphemes they utter. And, uh, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, this is God's word, friends. A lot has happened since we met Jesus in chapter one. And in a short amount of time, we can thank Mark's style for that. One thing happens after another. Jesus's unique authority, you'll remember, meant his rising fame in the region among the common folk. His behavior, however, including eating with sinners and doing what he wills on the Sabbath, his behavior meant rising concern among Israel's self-appointed leaders. Well, today we come to taste the rising personal cost of following Jesus. And it's immeasurable reward. The greatness of Jesus's comforting words, I pray will land on us and they will become more clear when we understand all that he means by them. We're gonna work through this passage differently than we usually do. We'll work from top to bottom, but I'm gonna leave some things on the trail as we go. And then when we get to the end, I'll go back and pick some of those things up. So don't be alarmed if I'm just leaving portions of the passage uh, on the side of the road. In order to hold out what I think is the most important thing in this unit, his words at the very end, we're gonna break the whole thing down into two parts. Four problems with following Jesus, verses seven through 30. And then one thing that makes it all worth it, verses 31 through 35. Let's begin with four problems with following Jesus. Four problems with following Jesus. The first are subtle. The second are right in front of us. The first one, we're misunderstood with him. The first problem with following Jesus is is being misunderstood with him. Verses seven through 12, look at the crowds. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. A great crowd followed. Here we are again from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Remember those places, by the way. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. A getaway boat. In chapter one, we had to go looking for Jesus, you might remember. He got away early in the morning to pray. And the disciples came to him. Everyone's looking for you. But Jesus had something of his own to do. Jesus was looking to move on. He had a job to get to, to preach. And we learned that Jesus's mission and our metrics are not always so well aligned, but we're getting trained in that. And Jesus was patient with his disciples and he is patient with us. And the disciples are starting to come around. The lesson may be sinking in at least a bit. Again, the crowds are overwhelming Jesus and he's retreating again. He tells his disciples, find a boat. They probably got used to finding some escape route for their Lord. Um, Okay, so Jesus isn't gonna lean into the crowd every time. Often enough, he wants out a getaway boat and they made sure it was ready. I was trying to think of occasions when this kind of crowd uh, comes, uh, uh, comes these days. Best I could come up with is when a championship team wins their championship Uh, away at the other uh, team's town. And then they come home with the championship trophy and there's a parade and everyone hits the pavement and the streets are full and they're there to celebrate. Crowds gather for celebration. 
well, why are these crowds here? Verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Well, they're there not for celebration, but for sad reasons. They're there because of disease and deformity and in death, these crowds are not coming to celebrate. They're coming because they are, they're desperate. They know what he can do. And we can't blame these folks for that. You'll know that um, I, my, my older brother died a year ago, about a year ago, uh, May 7th. And he was born with some significant heart problems. And in the course of his very early life at about a year and a half, contracted meningitis. And for the rest of his life into his early 40s, was severely mentally uh, handicapped. Uh, And I'll tell you, oh, how we would have gone anywhere and given anything to see Tyler restored to health. To see Tyler the way God had in the beginning and creation made humanity to be, to see Tyler enjoy all of his faculties and to think and to read and to sing and all the rest. And you can sympathize with the, the riot that would ensue hearing about Jesus. Crowds aren't a big thing for us right now. You can hardly gather a small one. But if CVS at Wade Hampton and Subaru Road were to become the single outlet for COVID-19 vaccine tomorrow morning, I want to say we'd see a crowd there and you wouldn't be able to stop it. Imagine a world without doctors or proper medicine. These people are hungry for help. Jesus can help and they've come to him for help. They know what Jesus can do, but they don't know what Jesus came to do. They misunderstand him. There are some here though, who don't misunderstand him. They understand him quite well. Verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Whenever unclean spirits came, this thing kept happening and they kept coming and saying exactly who he, who he was. Remember, we understand that best we can tell to be an assault, a kind of an attack, not a, not a form of submission. There's no misunderstanding in their minds. There's a contrast being set up in Mark between the way that people generally will understand who Jesus is. There's all different takes on him. The crowds have theirs. And then these spirits and and the demonic forces, which know full well who Jesus is. There will be opportunities later to discuss what we know and don't know along along these lines about spirits and demons. We know they're non-physical entities that may act on or within a person and they defile them, they're unclean spirits. But for now, it's enough to note that Mark is not letting us get very far without a reminder that there's more going on than meets the eye. Transformers reference for you. There's more going on than meets the eye. There's things going on here that we cannot see. The crowds live by what they see. And that's why they misunderstand him. And this is one of the problems we have in following Jesus. We are surrounded by others following him, but for reasons that have to do with what they see and see alone. If you follow Jesus, you will find that many people love him, claim him, but for their own this worldly reasons, for what he can do for them, maybe for healing, maybe for a better family, maybe for business, maybe for a social life, but not for the spiritual life and the business of salvation from sin. Crowds gather in our own town every Sunday and it's a mixed bag wherever crowds gather in Jesus's name. He is often misunderstood and those who seek to follow him will be with him misunderstood. And this is heartbreaking when it When it's against us, sometimes this misunderstanding takes on various forms. In this case, it's heartbreaking because they just miss the point. 
And so they're fleeing from the crowds, but of course the gospel will come and many will come to believe. Well, we're misunderstood with Jesus. We aren't understood to follow him for the reasons that we mean to follow him for, for the reasons we understand he has called us to him. There's a second problem that, that comes to us in following Jesus. And we're betrayed with him. We're betrayed with him, verses 13 through 19. We'll be gathering some insight here, but then we'll circle back around to this section to gather some more in a bit. In verses 13 and 19, we move from the sea to the mountain. Jesus brings a group from among the crowd to the mountain uh, to do something out of view. And here he appoints his 12 apostles. You've heard of them. Well, this is where it happens. Our family is watching the last dance, the story of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. Um, the infamous uh, Jerry Krause, the, the GM, had announced before the year started that Phil Jackson would be his last year. So Phil Jackson, who would give every, every year a different theme for the team, seems like a great coach, uh, called it the last dance. The guys, let's enjoy it. And let's, um, let's take another championship. We're watching that. You may be watching that. It's an interesting story. There are good draft picks, and then there are players you find to build a team around. There are good players, and then there are the players that you trade people away, and you get people on your team to complement and support and strengthen so that they can do what they do. And Michael Jordan was one of those. You build a team around him. And Jerry Krause, the team's GM, built a team around Jordan. Pippen, coach, Steve Kerr, Dennis Rodman, and others he had recruited to build a team around this super star. Well, this is not what's going on here with Jesus. Jesus appoints 12 apostles, but don't imagine these as some kind of super spiritual bunch. They were a ragtag gang. We have fishermen. We have a tax collector. We have Peter, you know about him. Uh, you've got these guys named the Sons of Thunder. What was that about? Was that an insult? I don't know. Was it sarcastic or, or uh, a naming from a, from a sense of humor? It may well have been. Uh, you've got this revolutionary zealot guy. Uh, just imagine these folks trying to come together to decide anything or to get together on anything. It would have never happened. But don't miss the last one. Verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who betrayed him? Jesus. This hadn't happened yet. The disciples on the page didn't know that one, of, one among them was going to betray Jesus. They were horrified when Jesus suggested it would happen when they were together in the upper room. But the disciples who first read this on the page knew full well who this was. As we read the Gospels, we remember we have the characters in the story and then we have the original readers for whom this story was written. Judas's story for them would have been raw. And so were other betrayals. Judas would not be the last. Paul, at the end of his life, spoke about betrayal in his second letter to Timothy. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. First John was written to help early Christians, yes, understand that they're in the faith, but also to help explain what it means when somebody leaves the faith, what goes out from among us. It's terribly hard. Following Jesus and before long, as we follow him, we'll find ourselves at one time or another, likely, betrayed. Kids, your sweet best friend who appeared to follow Jesus in younger years, who is too cool for him when school comes back into session. And now they're too cool for you if you're aligned with Jesus. If you haven't been in that situation, you will be in that situation. I've had friends betray Jesus. One friend who helped me see the way to Christ very early on, I moved across the country and found him a year or two later, not following Jesus, set against him in his heart. Another pastor friend, a dear friend, abandoned the free grace of Jesus in the gospel for another gospel. In some places, it's more than 
a social reality, but it's a political reality, which envelopes everything. Christians turning in other Christians to authorities. And as one becomes a Christian and Christians in a, in a community hesitant to meet together, not knowing who in the room might turn the rest in. That is, that is a reality for some Christians in some places. This matter of betrayal, this little note, and Judas, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, is just one note among many in the story of what it means to follow Jesus. It happens. If you will follow Jesus, you will be betrayed by Jesus and it will be hard. There's a third problem with following Jesus. Look at his family, verse 20 through 21. And he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went outside to seize him. They went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Maybe they feared for their lives. Maybe this crowd gathering situation that kept happening uh, put them in a dangerous position. Maybe it was embarrassing. I suppose it's at least that. His own family's embarrassed by him. And friends, if we follow Jesus, we're an embarrassment with him too. We're an embarrassment with him too. No matter what they say about Mary, there she is. She was not without sin. And the author, uh, Mark, was not bashful about portraying her as apparently this happened. Heading out to seize him, calling him nuts. Family bonds are the closest in the world. Jesus was crossing his family. He was harming those bonds. Follow Jesus and you might lose your family. You might become an embarrassment to your family. There's an account of an unbelieving spouse who leaves the believing spouse in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And that was just a pastoral situation that needed counsel in that church. And that kind of thing happened. One becomes a Christ follower and the other didn't sign up for this. The spouse's life is completely changed. Often enough, they stay together and and we can praise God for that. And we want that, always want that. But sometimes one just heads out for whatever reason that perhaps embarrassment is often the case. And so in becoming a Christian, one way you know you're taking the claim seriously for you if you aren't one is if you sense that it might make you an embarrassment, it might come with a variety of costs that we're talking about. Well, this is one of them. Uh, Picking Jesus over family is at the end of the day what we have to do. Doesn't mean we can't have them both, but if we have to have one, we'll have Jesus. And that's how you know you're with him. We're an embarrassment with him. That's the fourth. Then there's a fourth reason. The powerful public leaders of Jesus's day accused him and we're accused with him, verses 22 through 30. Accused of being evil. Look at the scribes. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Uh, Of course, you remember the scribes. Those were the the rule counters. They just loved counting up the rules. How many exactly do we have? Negative and positive. Okay, now that we've got those, let's go ahead and set up a hedge of more rules to keep us from violating those. Building great religious edifices of rules to be kept and for people to live inside or let's say outside. They thought of God as a a cosmic rule maker and humans as earthly rule keepers. This is at least where it descended. They love measuring the relationship with God and with others. And of course, we're listening to scribes here, but this is just an impulse within every human heart to see if we can't boil this thing with God down to a list. Not that rules are wrong. That's not where they went wrong. For the scribes, the relationship was for the rules. That's the problem and not rules for the relationship. This thinking turns the heart inward and God becomes measurable. Perfection becomes achievable. And in the end, they weren't very interested in God after all. And this is where it leads. Here they are again, the scribes sent from Jerusalem. Word must be getting around. I think of those Uh, black crow-like birds sent from Saruman and Isengard, the white wizard. 
And uh, the gang, the fellowship was, uh, I don't know where they were at. Dan Kruver knows where they were at. They were in some craggy rocks and then whew, the birds are flying all over. The spies will hear from Jerusalem. They've been sent. Word has come that Jesus is healing and claiming things and uh, the scribes are showing up, sent from Jerusalem. It's as if you can hear the music beginning. Look for their response. Their questions have not worked to trap Jesus. The stakes are raised. And so they try another move. They accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He's evil. That's what's going on. They don't deny the power that Jesus has. Oh, he's got power. You can't deny it. That's why he's so famous. They just denied Jesus's explanation for his power. It's more likely and more attractive to believe that Jesus is possessed than to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. So they're labeling him. Uh, Our president uh, has a fondness for labels. I thank God for our president. Uh, No evaluation here of the practice. One could evaluate the practice on some days. It's just that his practice is a bit of an illustration here, and he's gotten good at it with the label low-energy Jeb. He vanquished his enemy, uh, Jeb Bush, little Marco, or Pocahontas for Senator Warren, uh, alluding to her claim. Or the squad. You know what? This is a thing he does. Uh, if you can label them, and that becomes the interpretive grid for everything they do, and no one can get it out of their mind, then you've just hammered the mole. I mean, they're gone. Uh, that was a whack-a-mole uh, 80s arcade uh, reference there. So, yeah, it's a whack-a-mole. He's, he's, he's got him gone. And if he's got the right weapon, the right name, then, then he can make him go away. Well, this is partly what's going on here. Um, they're, they're, they're slandering Jesus. They're throwing out these accusations. Oh, he's just uh, possessed with Beelzebul. He's possessed of a demon. That's what he is. He's evil. And that can become the interpretive grid for seeing Jesus. This is their new, this is their new tactic. Anything but Jesus' claim about himself will do. Friend, there is nowhere to go from there for the scribes. There's nowhere to go. And Jesus won't return to the synagogue for chapters later. He moves on. Don't let yourself get there to the point where nothing can dissuade you from disbelieving Jesus and recognize that this is why some have not and will not believe. When put in a corner where the only option is either he is the son of God or call him Satan. He's just Satan is what he is. He's pretending. He's Satan fighting himself. When you start cooking up things like that, there's no return. That's why Jesus says what he says next. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. That's an often misunderstood line. Don't miss the generosity of it. If your conscience is plagued, don't miss the generosity of it. All sins will be forgiven. All sins. This needs qualification. Not all sins of every person will be forgiven. This is to be read in the context of everything else Jesus says. We come to him through repentance and faith. But don't miss the generosity of it if you want your sins forgiven. What a claim that is. How generous is Jesus? Our consciences are easily plagued. We wonder if we've committed this this single sin, like God has a list of sins he'll forgive, and then there's this one. If you do that one, then he won't forgive you. Don't miss the generosity of it, but don't miss the warning. If there is a sin which is bothering you right now, and if you're wondering if it can be forgiven, yes, it can be forgiven. But don't nurse it on account of that and return to it on account of that and love it on account of that 
and protect it on account of that. Before too long, you will find yourself saying, I just think Jesus is possessed by a demon. You'll find your heart hardened because that's what happens. And just like all sins will be forgiven needs qualification, the one that God will not forgive needs qualification, which is to say, if you find yourself turning to Jesus, then you're not guilty of it. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It's that backed into a corner, I will do anything except believe. That's a dangerous place to be. And so hear it that way. The first readers are reasoning, uh, resonating with this. I can't help but think of Peter's many words to his readers and his letters Readers who were persecuted and suffering. Mark and Peter were companions and Mark got much of his material from Peter in interviews and in walking and talking with him. If you will follow Jesus, you will be accused of being evil. Who can't think of our own headlines in our own day or even conventional American Western morality from two decades ago gets you slander and an accusation of being evil today, even conventional morality a decade ago, or even a few years ago, it only takes a switch of a president or a decision at the Supreme Court and everyone falls in line. And if you don't, you're evil. And that's one of the journalistic strategies at bringing people along. It's the pressure, the peer pressure No one wants to be evil. Follow Jesus and you might be called evil. Let's not celebrate that. Let's not be happy that someone would think that of us. Let us grieve that they're held captive and pray for them. Nevertheless, when we find ourselves under that kind of an accusation, we understand where it comes from. Now imagine the scene in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. Oh, here they come. Remember? Remember only a scene ago, they were in the home and they heard of Jesus' fame and they said, we're going to go seize him. He's going mad. And then they disappeared. And then we saw this scene here. Well, they're back. Now they've gotten here. Some time has elapsed. Little suspense in the story as Mark spreads these things out. His mother and his brothers came to him and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Inside are those who are gathered with Jesus, around with Jesus, outside Jesus's family, his family with papers for his institutionalization. They don't believe he's bad like the scribes. They believe that he has gone mad. They won't accuse him of being Satan. Maybe that's comforting. Just senile. What are his options? To roll with them and win them over? To hash it out with them outside the door? To ask them to come back later? You would think almost anything should be done to reconcile this situation and to bring them along. The family in the first century was not like it is today. Thank God for family. But in the first century, you wouldn't turn 18 and then maybe leave the country or turn 18 and leave the state for a job. Not saying it's wrong. Uh, One said it's almost like uh, one from another uh, part part of the world, another country said, I speak to my American friends and it's almost like families try to spread out as far as possible. You've got one in Canada, you've got one in Florida, one in California, and maybe someone moves to Alaska. That's not terribly unusual. Even my own family is spread out way more than I think we'd want to be spread out. Families were close. And you stayed close. You stayed in the neighborhood and you shared the business and maybe you died in the same home. Maybe you had never left town. Here's Jesus' family at the door. What are his options? 
Roll with it, win them over, hash it out with them outside the door, ask them to come back later. How about ignore them? He isn't concerned for what they need to hear from him. In this instance, Jesus is concerned with what those sitting around him need to hear from him. Jesus is concerned with what you and I need to hear from him. When we hear a knock at the door with the papers, he's gone mad. She's gone mad. And he answered them, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus looks around and he gathers them in his eyes and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We've picked up and reflected on four problems with following Jesus. Here now is the one thing that makes it all worth it. Verses 31 to 35. This is what we're going to need if we're going to keep following him with all that he takes and not get frustrated with the misunderstanding or flee at the betrayal and give up or give in to the embarrassment or run from the accusations. This is what we'll need. Christmas and Thanksgiving are the times when we're expected to be back in one spot together once again with family. I wish it wasn't so rare myself. Not so for these first century Jews. Family was identity and family was life and that banging on the door is the sound of what following Jesus may cost any of us. Friends, the good news is that Jesus calls us family. He calls us family. And that's what makes all the problems that he brings worth it. A comfort to all those who would lose anything for his sake, even family. If you know what that means, you have all you need. Let's take another scan through the passage as we reflect on this together. What is Jesus saying and calling us family? Well, Jesus is saying that we are his desire. Did you pick that up in verse 13? And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. The ones he's sitting around the table with. He's not just giving an illustration of family he, for their sake to, to understand something of how they belong together. He's, he's saying he loves them and desires them. Jesus desires us and he desires you. And Jesus has taken his disciples and these, these from the crowd up on a mountain to speak with them. And he took them there because he desired them. He isn't using us. You and I aren't pawns in his scheme. We are his beloved kingdom. Jesus is saying he desires us. Jesus is saying that we are his new creation, his new humanity. Follow me here. Verse 14, he appointed the 12. He appointed the 12. We might get something from that language of appointment. He created, he appointed. There's other things happening here. I don't know how many seats are in Congress or in Senate. I don't keep track of that. Maybe that's really important to somebody. But every Jew knew how many tribes there were, how many tribal heads there were, because everyone knew how many sons of Jacob there were. The number is 12, 12. 10 were lost centuries earlier, seven centuries earlier in Assyrian captivity. The prophets spoke of a day when God would gather his people from where they were sent and spread for a new exodus. He would come to get them. The book of Mark begins on that note that the Lord is coming for his people and to his people. 10 of these tribes had been lost, but the prophets promised a coming restoration and hear Jesus on a mountain, which reminds us of Sinai. Important things happen on mountains. Appointing 12. Establishing, not his nation, but, but his people. Gathering his people to himself. 
He is not appointing leaders from among Israel's self-appointed religious elite. He's not appointing leaders from the temple or from the synagogue. He's appointing leaders among those who have followed him by faith and who are therefore the true sons of Abraham through faith in him to pick up some language from the New Testament. Here, Jesus is gathering his people. Notice the geographical range from which everyone was coming. If you knew the region, you couldn't, you couldn't miss it when the section began from Tyre and Sidon and Edomia and Judea and Jerusalem. We remember Isaiah's promise in Isaiah 43. Mark begins his book with a quote from Isaiah 40. From Isaiah 43, the Lord promises to pass through the waters to get his people. I will give Egypt as your ransom. I will bring forth chariot and horse, all of that Exodus imagery. And he says in Isaiah 43, fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Jesus is gathering his people to himself. And here he is on a mountain. Make no mistake, the number 12 is deliberate. It is a statement against the religious establishment, which has presumed leadership of Israel, but which are made up of fierce wolves devouring her. In Jesus, the Lord has come to rescue and redeem his people in a way far greater than he did in the Exodus. And here he has gathered them to himself. Who are the true leaders of Israel? You're looking at them right here. And who is Jesus's true family, his true people? Those who are hitching themselves to Israel's Messiah, who is right here at this table. Jesus didn't just come to heal people with infirmities. He came to restore the people of God. And for those who have eyes to see They will know or they will come to know fully all that Jesus has come to do. No way do the people around the table know all that Jesus is bringing about in this moment. Oh, but it will become clear. And for the first readers and for us, it should be clear enough. Jesus is saying that we are his new people. Jesus is saying that he desires us. He's saying additionally that we are his companions. Did you see that in verse 14? And he appointed the 12, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him. They might be with him. Jesus is appointing these to be with him, to go with him, which involves spending time with him and learning from him to become like him. Jesus prayed to his father on the eve of his arrest that they would be with him as he is with his father, to see his glory the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. And when, and when the, the political authorities in the first century encountered early Christians, they would be astonished that such common and uneducated men would be so bold. And they would recognize, we're told in Acts 4.13, that they had been with Jesus. The only explanation for this kind of behavior and confidence Jesus is saying that we're his companions, we'll be with him. And that's for you and I too. By the spirit, Jesus is with us and we are with him today. And Jesus is saying as well that we are his partners. We will be with him that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. And God will gather his family by means of his family. The way that he, Jesus, gathers his people to himself today is through the words, the spoken word of people like you and me who open our mouths over the fence, maybe at six feet distance with our neighbors, who ask questions and get to know our neighbors and then speak the word of the gospel to them, which they need. They're hungry for healing and there are diseases and deformities and and there's death coming. We have an answer to death. And we have a Jesus who gives us something way better than just a way around death. He gives us himself. He gives us eternal life, which is knowing him. We're his partners in preaching 
the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is also saying that we are his plunder. Let's go back and pick up some things we left on the road again. Remember verse 23, uh, when the scribes were accusing him of being a demon casting out demons. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus said. If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, he's divided and can't stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's speaking in parables. What is this about binding a strong man and then plundering his house and taking his goods? What is all this? Well, who is the strong man? He is Satan. What is the house of the strong man? Is it not this world? Who are the victims taken captive? Is it not every soul made in the image of God who is enslaved to sin and enslaved to Satan in the course of this world and follows it blindly from blindness? Oh, there are lots of names for us outside of Christ. We're children of wrath because of our sins against our maker that are our sins. But we're also captives and those taken into slavery to, to Satan. Let's have a nice full-orbed way of talking about our plight outside of Christ. And this is, this is one of them. What is Jesus plundering? He is taking us from the grip of Satan. In chapter 49 of Isaiah, which sits behind the, the gospel according to Mark. Again, that's why he began there. We read of a servant, a person who will, who will bring the nations to the Lord. Who will say to the prisoners, come out. We read this in Isaiah 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. And here is Jesus arresting from the strong man, having bound him, taking his people for himself, rescuing them from his grip. And so we have We have unclean spirits coming to Jesus from all over on attack. Everything is on red alert. It's like when you stamp on an anthill, which I have done before, and they just go bananas. It's like that. We see disease, death, and deformity. We don't know the half of it, friends. There is a devil who takes us captive, and thank God Jesus is stronger. And thank God that Jesus can release us from his grip because he releases us from the penalty of our sins. For death's grip and hell's grip and Satan's grip is commensurate with our own judgment before God. And there's no freeing us from the devil's grip without freeing us from our sins. But Jesus as our great high priest dies in our place and takes our sins from us. And then Jesus takes us from the devil's grip. Remember our biggest problem isn't the devil. It is our, it is our own sin before God, but Jesus takes care of that. And so Jesus can take care of, take care of us. He bounds Satan in the wilderness. And now he is ransacking his house and out he comes with your brothers and sisters at Heritage Bible Church. And we meet to sing because we're free every Lord's day. And we go out as his partners entrusted with the gospel. Given his authority, he even goes with us as we preach it and as captives are made free as they turn from their sin to him. And of course, we are set free to follow all of this that Jesus is saying about those sitting around him is true of those who follow him. The message of our book, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Following Jesus, we shouldn't think of as a a ticket in as if we buy our way into the family. No, more like a seal that belongs to those that are in. 
But don't miss the import. If you do not follow Jesus, you are not in the family. If you don't follow Jesus, you are outside the door, either knocking on the door saying, Jesus, you're nuts, I'm here to get you. Or you're out wandering somewhere else without regard to him. But you aren't around the table if you aren't following him. Family sticks together and Jesus's family does the will of Jesus's father, which means Christian friend. And for any of you considering following Jesus, that there is no middle way. There is no halfway following. There is the expression when we speak of the weather, partly cloudy. We've had some tornado warnings recently and I think my, one of my daughters, I promise not to mention them unless I get permission, but I've narrowed it to two. That'll be easy enough now with my two sons because I have two of those. You won't know who's, who it is, at least when the other one is talking. But one of my daughters said, I think it's partly tornado. I'm not sure there's partly tornado. There is no partly following Jesus. There is no middle way. There is no half following. Following Jesus comes with problems and following Jesus means we take Jesus with everything he may take from us. We may be alienated in this world, brothers and sisters, but we have been, good news, accepted with Jesus. And he looks around at us and calls us brother and sister and mother. He is a total liability. And as we have read, he is totally worth it. And we may fall out with everybody we know. We can pray that won't happen, but we will be family with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this tender and surprising word from Jesus. A word about his own earthly family and a word about the family that he sat around with that day. Help us to be a church that helps one another along in this and following Jesus at all cost and bearing the burdens that come with following Jesus, that take the problems because Jesus is worth it. May we remember, Father, help us to remind one another that we belong to each other because we belong to him We are a great church, but we're a great church because we have a great Jesus. We have a great head of our church. We belong to him and he transforms us and he brings us together and he makes us family. But the first thing about any one of us is that we're family with him. Help us with this vision of belonging to Jesus as family. Help us by it to strengthen us for what may lie on the path ahead. There are shadows on the path and we can't see our way all the way from here to heaven with him, but we know there's trouble. Make us ready to accept it for Jesus' sake. Amen.